welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode five. Today I'm talking to Formula One engineer James Williams. As a senior transmissions engineer, he's literally behind the success of Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas. But James is also an established hill climber, racing single-seaters for well over 10 years. In this episode, we discuss what it's like to work in Formula One, but also what he's been able to take from the day job and apply to his hobby. This show is packed full of great advice that you can hopefully also pick up on and apply to your own So grab a pen and paper, sit back, and let's get into the show. Welcome, James. Hello, Samir. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to join us on the podcast. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, I'm sure. (laughs) So let's start off. You have quite an interesting day job in the world of motor racing. So just tell us a little bit about that. You also race as a hobby in some very, very cool cars. So I'm sure people will be really fascinated to hear about that. But the idea really as well is to see how we can translate some of your experiences both at work and in terms of your hobby such that people can sort of go, yeah, actually I get that or I never quite thought of that or I've never really thought of this, approaching things in this way. So yeah, so my, my day job is uh, I'm, uh, I'm lead engineer for transmissions at Mercedes Formula One. So I look after all the uh, transmissions and some of the hydraulics on the on the car for um, for Lewis and Valtteri uh, this season when the season finally gets uh, started. And I've done that for uh, about the last five years. Uh, and then uh, previously to that, I I worked at Honda Racing and worked at Braun and um, all those places um, that uh, that. Team Brackley, I guess, have been over the last few years. So, and, be, and before that, I worked at uh, Extract Transmission. So, I cut my teeth on my apprenticeship was uh, down there doing literally gear. cut teeth. Yeah, teeth. Uh, I did very good. Teeth. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I did a number of projects there on engines and uh, rally cars and um, Le Mans cars and, and anything that required a gearbox in motorsports. So, I've been brought up around motorsport and I've been uh, involved with motorsport for a long time. My dad raced cars, my granddad raced cars, my great-grandfather was an Isle of Man TT winner. No uh, way, I didn't know that, really? Yeah, yeah. So um, so motorsport and competition is sort of in the family blood a little That's bit. That's crazy, that, that race is, I mean, yeah. it's amazing, isn't it, the TT, but it's oh, just it's bonkers. Incredible. He's bonkers. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> if, you, if, if your listeners or yourself haven't seen it on ITV4, you need to go and see it or just catch them on YouTube. It's just... There's it's some just great onboards. Uh, I think, um, what's his name? Guy Martin. He's doing um, uh, a commentary. So he's driving around and then he's doing like a commentary back in the studio of, of yeah. what he's seeing. And the reference points... I just remember it's like, yeah, I and mean, come over over the brow here, and you just need to be a half a meter to the right of where you'd really want to be because there's a drain cover there, and you want to avoid that. And then just coming up here, you've got Mrs. Smith's house here. She's got a white picket fence. It's the third third um, third you know post after the thing. That's, that's your turning point for this corner. I'm like, what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> it's insane, but great, great racing. It's properly 
the last Bastillion of gladiatorial motorsport, I think, um, the Isle of Man TT, you know, but uh, it is amazing. I love it. It's just brilliant. So but I've got a little bit of family history there. So, it's amazing. Which yeah. is great. For me personally, I started hill climbing sprinting in 99 and uh, raced uh, predominantly single-seaters. So I. So what kind, of, what kind of cars, just for, for the... For the benefit of the audience, I mean, who, yeah. who, who may be aware of some of these cars, because they're, they're amazing. Yeah, so I started off in a, um, a Formula Ford 2000 car, which had a, a 1600 um, Hart BDA engine in it, which was an old ex-Atlantic, Formula Atlantic uh, engine. So it's sort of like 200, 220 brake horsepower to a Hewlett box, space frame chassis, you know, your classic 19 sort of, uh, late 80s, early 90s sort of um, Formula Ford type car. So I, ra- I raced that. And then um, we progressed on to a Delara Formula 3 car, which uh, we modified and engineered ourselves to put a Suzuki Hibusa engine in the back of. Mm-hmm. So it was a carbon carbon chassis car with, uh, like I said, with a tuned Hibusa engine in it. And we ran that for a long, long time. Did lots of development on it. Um made it faster every year, you know, got very competitive in it. Um, it got very quick, very proud of that car. So we raced, we raced that for a, for a good, good few years. Um, and then we had a, a Force hill climb car, which is a, a bespoke hill climb car, very lightweight carbon fiber chassis with the same engine as the Delara in. Um, and again, raced that for, for a couple of seasons, which was exceptionally, exceptionally um, fast and, um, and great. Um, and then we ran uh, an OMS, which again was another bespoke hill climb car, which um, was a sports car, so uh, like a sports Libra car with, with a Honda Blackbird engine in, uh, which which we ran for a couple of seasons, which was which was great fun. Um, and then I built, which was almost my own car. I bought a project, which was a honeycomb space train car that someone had started um, but hadn't finished. Um, and they'd unfortunately fall into a bit of ill health, so couldn't complete it. So, so I took that on and completed it as a complete one-off. So, engineered all the back end, built built it all myself, and um, and then I raced that for um, two or three years. So, uh, what did that involve then? Because you know, so you've got the day job. I mean, yeah. isn't isn't this sort of a bit of a busman's holiday? It is, but it's different. It's obviously quite privileged to work in Formula One and be able to do the hobby at the same time. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I found when I started working in Formula One was just the level of detail that everything went into. And of course, what you find then is that you just want to go and apply that same level of detail to what you do in your in your own racing. So, you know, you sort of turn up and you've got all these setup sheets and you've got all these systems and you've got all these things that surround the car and you think, well, this is this is amazing. I can apply this to my hill climb car, you know? And but then you soon realise that you can't you can't do it all, and it's actually really frustrating because you are just one person. Yeah, you, know, you don't have any help. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was obviously fortunate in the sense that you know, it was me and my dad who did it, rather than um, rather than anybody else. But um, it was you have all this infrastructure around running a car in Formula One, and it's brilliant. It's just sort of like for an engineer as well. The level of detail is just great, and you sort of think. I just want to apply this to my to my own car. So you start trying to apply the same mythologies and the same ideas to your car, and then you, you can easily get swamped by it. So what I found was you just had to take the best bits. So for instance, you know, so 
you know, we had a very complicated setup sheet for uh, F1 car that involves all these various things. It had a main spreadsheet which had links to all other stuff and all the rest of it. But actually, just that front page of a setup sheet was a really useful thing. It told you um, what the front wing level was, what the tire pressures were, what the damp settings were, what the springs were, what the corner weights were. I've probably still got an example of it somewhere. I could probably send it to you. So, you, you know, you sort of um, you fill up with the information that you can, knowing that you can't, you know, you don't know necessarily what your um, – uh, center of gravity is or exactly what your roll centers are unless you're lucky enough to have, you know been able to measure it all and all that sort of stuff but you can still take a guess and you can still put that information on and it just becomes a and in once you've done that you start to record it for every meeting that you go to and you just set up a very very basic spreadsheet that, you know, do, do you record it though i mean that's that's the question that I, I think a lot of people start off with the best of intentions and then it takes perhaps a little bit of continued discipline to keep recording because there's so much going on mm. uh, in preparation of the car and preparation of yourself. I mean, you, you drive, don't you? So the, and there's all this faff that goes on around the racing car. Yeah. The luxury, some of these setup things are very important, but they're not urgent. So I mean, yeah. and, and I think they, they may get missed. So, I mean, how did you manage um, how did you manage that? Well, the main thing I found was basically every time you made a major change to the car or any sort of change that you felt was for the better, you just had to write, make a note of it. So I had a little, um, just a very small, you know, size of your phone, sort of uh, old fashioned because I'm old fashioned and I have to have a pen and paper rather than a <laughs> thing. But, you know, just the size of your phone, a little notepad, you know, the one that had the little elastic bands yep. over. <clears throat> you could just flip open. So if, say, for example, so I'd have a setup sheet that we did at the beginning of the year. We'd always have the car set up professionally so at least you'd have the corner weights recorded, what your toe was, what your cambers were, all that sort of stuff. And When you say it, set up professionally, is that would that be something you'd do yourself or is that something you'd, you'd get someone else to do for you? I didn't have all the equipment, so I got someone to do it for me. So there's a number of companies out there who will do it do it for you. You've got corner weights and camber gauges and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So and it just gave you a baseline. You know, especially with a new car. Yeah. If you got it set up professionally, it gave you that baseline, you know. And when you if you went testing or you, you did an event and you made a check. So well I, these companies normally give you a set of, a sheet of what they've done. So it tells okay. you all the basic information. So then I'd fill out the information on, on my sheet with what I got, plus some additional information like what the wing level was or, you know, if there's anything in particular that I wanted to record. So that was like my, my spreadsheet. And you're absolutely right. What would happen is in the midst of a meeting or testing, you, you, you know, you don't have time. You haven't got a team of engineers around you to, yeah. to record it all. But if you have a little notepad just in your top drawer of your toolbox, you know, if you change a tire pressure or you change a front wing, you might just say, you know, second practice run, put wing up two notches. And you just have to try and be disciplined to, to write that to write that down. Because <clears throat> what happens is is if you if you crash the car or you lose you lose your way, how do you go back to how the car was good? Hmm. Well, I, I, that was that, that, so that's an interesting thing. So you're talk, you're, you're talking about inputs there. But what do you do in terms of out, outputs or outcomes? Because one of the things that Formula One 
is very good at doing is, is also recording the outcome and actually working backwards from a desired outcome to a present state. Yeah. Which is something that it would be interesting to get your thoughts on because I don't think a lot of people realise that. The layman may may think that it's a kind of a we just keep on trying things until it works, but we don't but works what works is is a bit of a vague thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say. And so but I think from a from an engineering or Formula One environment, a lot of time and effort has been put into defining what good is and mm-hmm. then working backwards towards from that. You know, so how do we achieve a very clear goal? And I think that's a sort of an engineering kind of mindset because we don't like they. Yeah. But that's not everyone's approach. So how do you how do you do that as well? Like how do you what's good? I mean, with a hill climb car, you're not doing laps in the same no. way as a track car is. So and and I guess the circuit changes during the day. And you're not on track for very long either. I mean, it's quite, no. it's quite. Hopefully, you know, <laughs> it's quite a short, intense period of time. So, how do you how do you gauge what good is? That's, that's a really good question. I, in, in Formula One, obviously, what you've got on the cars is cars littered with sensors. Okay. You know, so the driver can't lie. The driver can't <laughs> pull the wool over your your eyes. You know, because and of course, because of all those sensors, you can then do calculations and you can work out. You can actually calculate if the car is oversteery, understeery, you know, all that sort of stuff by measuring suspension loads, tire slips, all this sort of stuff. So there's all this clever vehicle dynamics that that goes on. You know, yeah. that you do. obviously for an amateur racer, you haven't. You've got some. If you are a good peddler, if you're a good driver. And you know how to interpret the data. You can um, you can measure your either lap time improvements, or you could maybe be able to measure um, whether you've got a little bit more turn in by your G lap, a little bit more acceleration by your G long. If you've done an engine tweak or you've changed something, uh, like taken some weight out of the car or something like that, you should be able to measure that even with the most basic of, of data loggers. So you know you should be able to see that. Obviously, that's an area that I've got some some interest in, but and I'm interested in helping others with. But is that something you were able to pick up? I mean, or is that something that you had to learn yourself? I think it's something you have to learn yourself. And I think I think before you get to that stage, you almost need what I would call the placebo effect of you know you make a change, and in your head it's better, you know, and it's a step in the right direction. And that might be by lowering some tire pressures. And particularly in hill climbing, the SIBO effect is massively um, dominant with drivers. You know, you could say to a driver, right, track's cooled down a bit. I've put an extra few PSI. You'll go quicker this afternoon. And if, you, and if the guy in the car trusts you, he'll go quicker because he'll immediately have that little bit more confidence in the car. You know, I've done things before where, you know, I've had drivers come back and say, this car's awful. You know, it's all over the place. And it's just because they've been, maybe they've tried too hard or their mind's been on the argument they had in the morning or whatever it is. So you tell them you've done a whole raft of changes. You send them out again. They go two seconds quicker and they tell you that whatever you've done is brilliant and you've done nothing to the car. All you've done is train their mind into thinking that the car is better. Yeah. Once you get over that hurdle, when you start out, once you get over that hurdle, you've got the same car you should be able to start to feel the differences and the best way to feel the difference is to go to extremes you know so you know i've done a test where i've taken the wings off a uh, a winged car 
you know wow. so really? just yeah just to prove to people what a difference it is because people say i i don't i can't feel it so okay i'll take the wings off and immediately they'll come back and go <laughs> hopefully, no hopefully they'll come back <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah, I, I, you know, you say, go and be careful but you know i mean for instance if you go to the, the um the Kerbera sprint course up at Litchfield, you can hire that for a day, it's 800 quid or whatever it is for the day. And they have a, it has a very long left hander to begin with. I've sent people off around there without any wings on their car and immediately they'll just come in after one lap and say, I can't get around the first corner. I said, right. Okay. Now you understand what the wings do. You bolt them back on and then you sort of, you know, you then start to put the downforce on, but you, what you do is you go from extremes. You've gone from nothing. You say, right, I'm going to give you everything now. And then you get to the point where they can go around it flat, but then wow. their end, then their end of straight speed is lower because they've got so much drag. Yeah, and they'll they'll come back and say to you, "Well, I, I you know, I'm I'm not going over the line at eight thousand RPM. I'm only doing seven thousand RPM." Okay, well that's because you've got this much drag. So once you take people to the extremes, they then suddenly understand what those areas of the car are doing for them, and it's the same for you know, toe in, toe out. It's the same for damper setting springs. You know, we've, I've had people before where I've said, oh, I want really soft springs. So they put really soft springs on and they get to the end of the straight and the car's going, <laughs> yeah. know, okay, well. Plowing a furrow through the tarmac. <laughs> exactly. You know, but then you put the really stiff springs on, they find the car really skitty. And again, that's where, you, and then you, you, you converge into a middle point and then that's when you start to do your do your fine fine tweaking. But you, you've got to understand the feel of what those extremes are to know what the small the small things are. And again, that's that's a very engineering approach, isn't it? We always, if, if you've got a complicated problem, it's quite common to take take it to this. You know, well, what what's the crazy extreme, and what would that look like? And then and then the other way. Um, so, so that you get an understanding of of what's really going on in the problem, and and that's what you're saying there. You're, you're just kind of doing that in a very practical sense. And I, I wonder whether people have the confidence to do that normally, and whether or whether they just they they move around in in a in quite a narrow band in terms of the settings that they have available, and such they they may or may not really appreciate the difference, you know, or they, or they may not feel it. Um, could be tire pressures, could be springs, could be damper settings, could be wing, even wing levels. You know that they're, they're not making enough of a difference to really feel any different. Um, but you know there are simple things that you can do to understand hmm. your car, and I think you know once you've got a car, understanding it is is really crucial. I mean, one you know another thing that I've done again is with a winged car. So you know, I'll, I'll talk more about unwinged cars maybe in a bit, but. You no, know, I, 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 you know, we've taken racing cars to airfields before, and to test uh, terminal velocity. So you know, you put it in a straight line, you put maximum wing level on, and you literally fire it down the straight until it will go no faster, and you measure the speed, and then you take all the wing off, and you do the same test again, and then you'll put it in the middle, and you do the same test again, and you draw a graph, and you've got a graph of your you know, terminal velocity for a, for your car. So if you're racing at Silverstone and you want your end of straight, you know, your end of straight speed at the end of hangar straight, straight needs to be 120 miles an hour or whatever it is, you know that you will need to put 
you'll need you'll know roughly where you want to put your put your wing setting rather than just guessing it. You know, you can go and hire an airfield for a hundred quid an hour. You know, in an hour, you you learn a whole. You know, you learn a learn a load about your car, but having done a real simple simple test and just applying some very simple simple engineering. If you've got a basic data logger, again, if you're messing with brake pads, for instance, if you've got simple data logger. Well, that's, a, that's the thing people talk about, isn't it? Oh, what pads do you use? Oh, I use those ones. Why? But, well, <laughs> they were not, they were green. I don't know. <laughs> they, were, they were a different colour. I don't know why they... And oh, they, the brake feels brilliant on them. It's like, based compared to what? How is that? Is that a, well, is that a good thing? I mean, yes, maybe the feel is really important, but... Feel. <laughs> as soon as you mentioned feel, it's a very personal thing, mm. really personal. And feel of brakes, feel of anything is really down to the individual. And if they feel confident in their car, they will go quick. Exactly. You know, yeah. if if you've got someone saying to them, "No, this is quicker," but they don't feel comfortable, you know, it's like I could take all the wings off a winged car, say you'll be fastest because you've got a you know, straight line speed advantage, but they don't, they can't hang on to it around the corners. They'll go slower, you know? And I think, I think in fairness, that's, that permeates all the way through to a professional level in terms of driving as well. Yes. I don't think there's any difference there in the sense that, yeah, there might be a professional driver, but I think they still need to feel comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but again, you can apply, you know, when I go back to talking about brake pads, you can apply, if you've got a simple data logger on your car, you can apply some very simple engineering. You know, again, if you if you're if you've got a test track or even an airfield that you go to, you can just stamp on the brakes to a point that you're not locking them up. You know, and, and do three three runs, let's say, on each brake pad, you'll soon get an idea of how quickly you can stop. Oh, so know? that's yeah, so that's another good point you're mentioning there. And some people again would take that for granted and others would think, oh that's new, which is to do multiple tests on the same yeah. setup i mean if you're for example if you if you're doing laps you you know you're going to do more than one lap you'd imagine yes. um yeah. so but and so what you're saying is the equivalent of that so so take your brake pads and then do three runs maximum threshold braking yeah so, and then change your pads and try a different set and then compare yeah. the numbers afterwards Definitely. And the other important thing to do on that is always go back to what you think is your baseline during yeah. a day. <clears throat> so if you've got three brake pads. Yeah, because I might get better at pressing the brake during the day. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And like you said before, track conditions change and everything changes. So, you know, if you're testing three brake pads, for instance, yeah, put your first one on, your number one set, go out and do 10 laps change it to your next one, go and do 10 laps, then do your third one, and then come back to your first one. You know, and, <clears> and yes, it's it's an overhead doing that mechanically, but if you've got a track day, you've just yes. got to, you know, plan out your track day. Track days are not always about just razzing around the circuit. You know, you won't go quicker just by going around in circles. You know, you go quicker by by learning about your car and learning about your own skill. And I, I think that's, that's a really good point about learning about the car as much as learning about how to how to drive it uh, the you, you want some certainty i suppose around well these are the settings i've chosen and for a reason 
uh, that is more yes. than, you know, the other fellows are in the paddock are running that, so that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you and, and I think that's an important point, is that if you want to, if you're getting to the level where you want to go out and win, you need to justify everything that you've got on your car. And that justification cannot be just because this bloke's got them. You know, you mm. want to be able to say, I've got this on my car because, and give a good sound technical reason or, or an engineering reason, depending on, you know, how you want to do it, you know, because everyone's got something they want to sell, you know, or yeah, something, yeah. you know. So, yeah, you could have a air trumpet manufacturer who says, these are the best things ever. Please, please pass five thousand pounds <laughs> and everyone will think they'll be going quicker but are they you know you need to go and investigate it and research it and make sure that it's it works for you but what i like about what you're saying there is your it's a very practical approach as well so you don't need to do the math if you don't want to you just have to no. almost do some spe- it's, it's specialist testing but it's not sophisticated yeah not difficult at all and again if you go back to just having a little piece a little notepad or an a5 notepad or something that you can just scribble things down just having those notes really helps when you go back so and it it is a discipline and i'm not saying it's easy it's very easy not to do anything and just get carried away with the weekend and you get to the end of the day and you go and have a beer with your with your buddies and all that sort of stuff you know and i'm not saying you shouldn't do that you should absolutely do that but just take two minutes just to write down what you've done or what you've changed or what didn't feel right or did feel right. Because when you get back to your garage and you're prepping for your next meeting, what are you going to do? Are you just going to go out with the same car? Because if you go out with the same car, you're, you're not going to go any quicker. You're not developing your car. You're not developing yourself. But if you've got a few notes from your last meeting, you can say, okay, well, you know, I didn't like this and I didn't like that. And there's lots of people around who will help you, you know, generally competitors at the amateur level are helpful people but the important thing is if someone says that you then got to go and test it you know go and test it and go does that work for me and if it works for you then it gives you the reason to say i've changed that because i've got a, I've got a question for you because this is this is kind of this is the sort of engineer in you talking and uh, i'm nodding away and i, I agree <laughs> but the driver in you at the same, it's, I personally find it quite hard to be a driver and an engineer at the same time, particularly yeah. when I'm driving. <laughs> yeah. um, it tends to make me slower because I'm thinking about things I shouldn't be. I should be just thinking about driving and not car. Mm. How do you how do you cope with that? Well, I think thing, the thing is, in particular for me, is having done predominantly hill climbing. Hill climbing and, and, and that is literally, you forget about everything. The minute, the minute you start your run, you, you just forget about everything. And it's just, how do I get to the top of this hill in the fastest, fastest time possible? And you sort of forget, you know, I think when you're doing laps, I think that's when you start to think about the engineering side, you know, because you've got into a rhythm and then you're starting to think about what your car's doing and how can I improve this and how can, how can I improve that? I think I've, and I, and I have done some circuit racing where I've thought that I've been doing laps and then you start to try and 
try different things and all the rest of it. I think the important thing is is to try and learn when you're driving to learn about your engineer yourself. You know, so if you think you've got a problem with the car, if it's a bit understeery or a bit oversteery, how do I change? How do I engineer myself? Or how do I adapt myself to this this issue? Because I'm stuck with this for this race. Well, and I think that's a very good that's a very good point. Um, the car is changing every every lap that you're yeah. doing. So there's part of you that should be trying to work out what's going on all the time. Yeah. And to, to get the most out of it. And yeah. sometimes that means you're getting more grip because the tyres are warming up, for example, or and sometimes it means you're now getting less grip because they've gone over, you know, they're past a certain point. Or, But the, yeah, meant the engineering yourself bit is, is quite interesting. So you're trying to adapt to make the most out of it. And it's a, a, the mindset of just get everything you can from what you've got. Yeah rather than sort of t- throwing your toys out of the pram halfway through the race. Definitely. And, gi- and giving up. <laughs> but, it's, but it's also understanding what the car's doing to a degree. So don't worry about the mechanics of what the car's doing. Just oh, think about yeah. feeling what the car's doing. So what's the behavior of the car and how am I adapting myself to cope with this? And is it what, making- What do you mean? What do you mean by that? What, 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 you, so, what have you got in mind? So, for example, if you've got a car that's understeery, and I can talk about this because I've, I've had this experience. So you have a car that you turn in, the front washes out, and then you're having to back off as you're coming out of a corner. So, therefore, you're slow down the straight. Yep. And you yeah. do a couple of laps. And you're, if you're doing that same thing lap after lap, you're always going to be slow down the straight. Yeah. So, yes, you don't like the feeling of it. But let's not let's forget about the engineering of it. Let's forget about why it's doing it because it's probably doing it because the front tires have grained, they've gone off. You've got a setting wrong. You haven't got enough front wing on. It, there could be hundred and one engineering reasons as to why why that is. So you have to say to yourself, how am I going to adapt my driving style to get around get around this problem? Do I need to turn in a little bit earlier? Do I need to brake a bit earlier but be on the power? How can I get that grip back? You know, and it's about feeling what the car is is doing underneath you to try and adapt your style. So it's it's engineering yourself. It's what I call engineering yourself. You know, how can I change my settings to cope with what this car's doing? And like I say, it could be any because if you're thinking about the engineering, all you're thinking about is when I get back to the pits or when I get after this race, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that, and it's not going to make you any quicker in that race. And if you come across the same problem in the future, you're just going to be thinking about the engineering again. Whereas the driver in you has to say, okay, take the engineering away, take the science away. This is what I'm feeling. What do I know that I can do to change it? You know, and yes, you may be, you won't be as quick as you want to be, but I can almost guarantee you'll be going quicker than you would be if you just do the same thing lap after lap after lap. There's an acceptance there. As a driver, is what you're suggesting. Is there, is there someone um, to pull this into your day job? Yeah. Is there, who, who's good at doing that? Um, I can tell you, who's not good at it. Jensen Button was not good at it. So, <laughs> Jensen, well, he's a, he's a big follower of the podcast, so now he's just unsubscribed. Thanks, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, I think he admits in his book. If you read one of his books, he admits that he's not good if he hasn't got a car that behaves well. Mm-hmm. then he can't do it. 
Whereas if you take Lewis, for example, he's very good at adapting his style, you know, so... I mean, is there something you've seen? Because you, you have more insight into what those guys are really doing compared to us when we're looking, you know, through a TV screen or a thing. Is there something that they, they show you internally that you can really look at that and go, you know what, that is pretty, that's pretty special? Because one of the questions that comes up quite often is what really makes the difference between a professional racing driver and someone who is very, very good at club or an amateur level? What, what, what makes the difference between those two? <laughs> well, I went karting a long, long time ago. Um, and we, there was a Formula 3000. If anyone's old enough to remember Formula 3000, there was a Formula 3000 driver who turned up. And he was a midfield peddler. You know, no one's okay. special. I imagine he's probably, you know, he's, he was from Portugal. So I imagine he's probably farming strawberries in Portugal now or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, he, he got himself up to Formula 3000 level. But he was a definite midfield midfield runner. Yeah. And, of course, as soon as you have someone like that who turns up karting, you know, they've got a target on their back. Yeah. And um, anyway, he came up behind me and uh, he overtook me. And I thought, right, oh, I'm going to keep up with this guy because he had all his kit and helmet yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and he, you know, in nothing, same carts or as, as similar as they could be. And he, and I was, I was not a bad driver. I was not a bad carter, but he just disappeared from me. You know, he just, you know, shot off into the distance and there was just no way that I could keep up with him. And it's, I think the biggest difference is just in, I think there's a natural ability. I don't think there's something that you can teach. Really? Okay. I think there is a, people do have a natural ability. And I think it's about what they feel. You know, and okay. it's what they feel the car is doing underneath them. And it's the really quick drivers are almost constantly dancing on the edge of grip all the time. You know, and even though when you look at the, some of the Formula One cars and the onboard stuff, their steering inputs look very precise and very controlled. And there's not, you know, there's none of this going on. It's, it's all very controlled. But they are, I imagine that they are not a million miles away from that car going off. You know, they're just, they're just being able to feel the cars just start to move and they can just put small inputs into the, whether it's throttle, brake, steering, they're just always, always adjusting, but by the smallest amounts, you know, so if if at any point they sort of do a big input, the car will, the car will disappear. And that's why you see sometimes drivers go off when they hit a white line or they just touch the grass or something like that, because it's just that instant loss of grip. Yeah. And because there's no margin, and if you imagine a line here, no one's going to be able to see what I'm doing. But I was going to say, that, that's, a, that's a line above like, his head. <laughs> you imagine a line and you, you bring your, your hand, a line of my hands up to the top of my head. If you bring your other hand up and you touch your, your hand here, those professional drivers are at that. If this is your traction limit, they're always touching this traction limit. All of us amateur drivers are, are below that. You know, we don't find that last 5%, 4% because it's just not in our ability. It's just not in our, um, you know, makeup as such, you know. And I think it's the same, you know, you think about tennis players, you think about professional musicians, you think about all these people. They've been doing this from a very early age, you know, eight years old, seven years old. People have been buzzing around in carts or whatever it might be, you know, and they've just, they've just honed their abilities from a very, very, very early age, you know. So, I mean, personally, I think there's a there's a an artistry 
in driving. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And and in terms of hitting the limit, I I, I would say that us regular or more regular drivers do hit the the limit uh, every so often. Yes. But we don't sit on the limit. See what I mean? We, i.e., we we are effectively making more mistakes yeah. than um, at, at, and at a bigger delta. So, 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 what I mean by that is, um, if if we lose grip, I'm overcorrecting by more than I should, by more than I need to. Mm-hmm. What what I really, I've always admired about Lewis, watching his onboards and stuff, is the way he deals with a loss of grip. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly at the back, it's so smooth. It's I, you just watch it and just go. He should be putting much more steering in at a much higher rate, and he doesn't. It's just it's just silky smooth, like almost. A, and he's almost driving the, he's driving the the slide, as well as he would be driving the, the corner. If that makes sense, it's, yeah. it's not reacting to catch a problem. He's he's sort right. of, he's driving that as well. But what you don't see on the onboard is what he's doing with his feet. So, you know, there's a a lot of things that he's doing or a lot of the drivers do with their feet that you just don't see. So, you know, we all know what it's like to drive a rear engine car when it's wet round a roundabout. You know, when you're sliding your car, you know, your Mark II Escort or whatever it is round a a corner, you're not correct. Speak for yourself, mate. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) But you're, you know, in those situations, you're not correcting that slide with the steering input, or you shouldn't be. Yeah, you're, okay. you're correcting that slide with your, with what you're doing with your feet, and whether that's, you know, and some people when they get caught in that situation will just back off the throttle. As soon as you back off the throttle, the car snaps the other way, doesn't it? You know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Whereas yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you if you're if you're driving the throttle with like the old like the old Jackie Stewart used to say, if you've got an egg between your throttle pedal and your foot, you know, if you're driving the car like that, you'll be able to control that slide, you know, and you won't have any aggressive change in direction or anything like that, which slows you down. You know, you're able to be very smooth. So if you imagine balancing a car, if you've got a constant steering input and you're just balancing it on the throttle, a little bit like drifting, I guess, but if you're just balancing it with the throttle or a little bit of brake and you can control everything with your feet, it's a far, far quicker way. It takes it takes confidence, though, to do that, doesn't it? Because when something happens Absolutely. and you're not... So I've got this concept about driving where you're... The better drivers have a better mental model of what is going to happen. This is my little theory, right? And... When they drive around the corner, they're reacting to the difference between the mental model, how that, how they think that would feel, and what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. So, so they're not. Then it's not a, it's not a sort of a, a voyager discovery every time. A bit like you know when you when you do fly off onto the grass, it's all a bit of a, a bit of a moment because you don't really know what's going on. You're driving and you have a, quite a clear idea of what it should feel like or what you want it to feel like and then you're you're reacting to that and mm-hmm. but if something happens like you go over a white line or something happens that that is a big step away from what you anticipate it yeah. being that is the bit where that 
survival instinct kicks in. Absolutely. And you start doing more macro movements or larger movements, which with what you're saying is it's the worst thing you can do. Yet yeah. the professional drivers, they're not panicked in the same way and they're, and they're just... No. And it is confidence. I mean, if you go on YouTube, if you look up Simon McKinley, so okay. Simon McKinley was a um, Irish Northern Ireland um, rally driver, stroke hill climber, sprinter. But his driving style was um, very um, uh, entertaining, yeah, but incredibly smooth. Wow. And but he was very exciting to watch, but absolutely insanely fast. So okay. he wasn't one of these people who was all sideways and slow. He was sort of sideways. And, you know, if you watch some of his single-seater stuff, that car was never, never looked like it was um, going to crash, but was continually on the limit. And you could just see it, you know. And he did all of that. You know, you could see, you know, because you can see a little bit from, um, you know, yeah. but none of that was big steering inputs or anything like that. He was sort of all very smooth with the steering wheel, but it was all all controlled, all controlled with his with his feet. I'll put I'll put a link in the um, in the description. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll find him afterwards. Yeah, so but amazing, very talented uh, talented driver, you know. And uh, and again, that goes back to your point of that. You know, I don't think he had that survival instinct as such. He um, you know he would just drive that car how it as quickly as he could as he could I, I, i'm sort of questioning sorry i'm just i'm just thinking aloud i'm almost questioning my own thing about saying survival instinct just thinking through it in my in my own mind that it's not it's almost frustration it's like a it's like you just want to go quicker and something's happened and you now know that that doesn't feel quick and you want to get back to being quick as soon as as quick as you can I, I've got, I mean, the comedy thing that's dropped into my head as I've thought about this is, 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 you, is you know, when, you, when you've got a pint and you fall over, <laughs> you're trying to save the pint. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you just don't care about anything else other than saving your beer. No, no. And, and it's like that, that, that's the kind of thing in my head. It's like, oh, something's gone wrong. That's meant my, my legs have gone from under me, but it's really the car's gone from under me. And I just want to save the pint. As much as, as much as best as I can, and and that involves me doing all sorts of contorted kind of weird movements. To, yeah, yeah. And I'm not really thinking about it. But if I if I fell over more often with my drink, I would probably be much better at saving my pint. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make any sense. But if, you, if you turn that around, <laughs> if you turn that around, though, I mean, it's an interesting analogy. If you turn that around and you think about pint being your car. Yeah. You know, how many of us actually just don't want to damage our car? Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's the other thing, isn't it? We all spend, as amateur racers, we all spend huge sums of money on our motorsport. Five pounds, mate. Five pounds. All costs five pounds. Everything's these five are, pounds. These, these, are, these, are, these are the official figures. Okay. F- for the okay. record. <laughs> Ten pounds an event or whatever it is. But, yes, you know, yes. if, you, if you crack, you know, and, and that's that, and, and you pay that and you accept that and you have a budget for the season, you know, if you crash your car, all of a sudden your budget is yeah. either double or you're depending on what the size size is. And I, I think as amateur racers, we always have that, you know, in our, in our minds. You do drive with a little bit of a, you know, if I crash this car, then it's going to cost cost a lot of money. And I think 
us all as amateur drivers will always have that slight nagging doubt, you know. I mean, someone like Roman Grosjean doesn't have that nagging doubt in his head because he just crashes all the time. But um, honestly, all know. the Formula One drivers are now, they're just, they're never going to listen to me again. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't crash all the time. <laughs> but, you know, they don't have that. They don't have that issue. He's had a few goes, haven't he, over the years? Uh, yeah. But I think equally for them, that must be quite an adjustment because they they will have had to have confronted that themselves at some point. It, you know, it, they they will have had, they've had, they they will have, they will have some awareness, and even if it's not the cost of the repair, it's the you know they've got to walk back into the garage and confront the team, yeah, who aren't best pleased, and it might be there might only be like a handful of parts for that car. You know, there's all sorts of things that would mean that crashing is a bad thing. But I think that that does limit us, and I think it goes back to your thing about your pint. You know, you, you'll naturally always try and save your pint and you'll always naturally try and save your car so if you have a little moment where you know the car doesn't do what you think it's going to do your immediate gut instinct is i need to save the car you know so it's not necessarily about survival instinct for yourself but it's a survival instinct for your for your car go on tell us a bit tell us a bit about the reliability we've had a we've had a chat about the reliability of it uh in the past so what what kind of stuff could people do that you think, you know, that's so easy. That's so easy to do, and no, uh, you know, no one's really doing that, and yet it would make so much difference to them. I think it's a thought process, and it's a different way of. It's maybe a different way of thinking. You know, if you bolt something on your car or you design something to put on your car, you need to be looking at that and saying, you know, almost imagining will that last a hundred races? You know, and not not necessarily thinking, oh, I need to design it so it's heavy or I need to design it so it will last 100 races. What I'm saying yeah. is looking at it and saying, fundamentally, will that stay tight? Will it not break? Will it not vibrate loose? Will it not vibrate and crack? You know, and all those sorts of things. So it's looking out for things like, you know, if you've got a welded joint that doesn't look very pretty or doesn't look very well done, that will break. One day, that will break. So you should look at that and say, I need to change that. I need to do something about that you know, because it's one day. It will, so it's basically trying to <clears throat> think about what's going to stop you. You know, if you've got, um, you know, if you've got a bolt, a nut and bolt that just keeps coming loose and you're, when you're doing your spanner checks, it's always the one that's loose. You might want to say to yourself, that will come loose and fall off one day. I should put a bigger bolt on it. I should put an anti-rotation feature on it or secondary locking feature I should do something about that because one day that will that will stop me, you know. And I, I think you know when you run your car, you naturally find the things that come loose or the things that are going to break. I mean, how do you find the time for that? Because because this is the, the kind of the engineering mindset, of course, of trying to reduce variability, reduce risk, reduce any uncertainty. But the practicality of of, of limited resources in terms of time, you, you're there on your own or whatever. So how do yeah. you go about ensuring that you you do that each time because you might be rushed or or whatever the main thing is to always turn out a clean racing car from the beginning always from the beginning and and for every single event so you just think the the pure act of just cleaning the car will highlight to you absolutely absolutely between every event if you do nothing else in between your event clean your car and I mean, when I don't when I mean clean it, I don't mean wash it with a 
you know, a sponge and a bucket and some fairy liquid. I mean, get the rags out and get the WD-40 out or the GT-85 and go and clean your suspension parts, go and clean your engine mounts, go and clean your loom, get all that muck out from where it collects. And because when you clean something, you're looking at it. The act of cleaning it is you're looking at it and you you will spot something that's either started to fret or started to crack or started to come loose. You'll find it just by the act of cleaning it. And, it, and it's a beautiful thing because if you clean your car, every time you turn it out, you can be proud of that car. And the other thing is, is that you know you've got nothing hiding. You know, if you've got a big clump of mud stuck in an internal suspension joint, how do you know that's not going to break? How do you know that's not going to come loose? How do you know it's not corroded? You know, how, you know, how do you know, you know, you don't know. And just that very simple act of just, you know, wheeling your car out on a sunny Thursday afternoon or evening and just cleaning it, take the wheels off it and clean it and, you know, make, make it all spangly and nice. Will you, you will spot those, you will spot those things. And, that, and, that, and then going on from that is that when you do clean it, if you do get into the habit of cleaning it, you will always find the things that are coming loose and the things that are breaking. And they're the things you need to target for when you're doing a, a rebuild or your, or your, um, or your servicing, you know? Yeah, I think that's very simple. It, it, it's that is a great it's a great simple thing and, and you do see cars that are not so well prepped coming out onto the track and, and you wonder well maybe they've, they've missed something and and there's two elements to it there's a the frustration at best of having a car break down on you for some reason mm. and then the, you know the safety at worst having something significantly break that causes you know harm or injury to you or someone else so the yeah. obviously the scrutineering process is there to su- support the the second bit but from from your point of view if something breaks that's pre- preventable you think oh you know that's a waste of a weekend and absolutely and there's nothing worse than having your first practice session or your first practice run or whatever it might be and something breaking you know, because that's your weekend over. I've been there. It's it's horrible. You know, you go to your you go you go to the line, you you run and literally. I mean, particularly on like a hill climb, you know, something just goes bang and stops the car, and it's and you almost look at it and you go, "Weekend over." Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, I've been looking forward to, forward to it to two weeks. You know, the car's polished, clean. It looks amazing, and something very simple is broken and um well, you know well as you know i had a i had a bit of an incident uh along those lines with a diff uh go and mm. um my i was on pole position as well and it would be the way and uh yeah just just got a little maybe a bit excited on pole and um and then you know after the first dropping of the clutch as the lights went out the diff went and uh then i've got 30 cars behind me that i'm now terrified of trying to avoid me so there was a kind of like a Immediate frustration, then an immediate terror, then a, then they all yeah. got past me, and then there was immediate <laughs> frustration again. I, you you don't win unless you've got attention to detail. I mean, certainly in the day job, we will engineer things down. You know, we stress every item down to the down to the last ten grams of of a component. You know, and yeah. because of that, we expect the parts to be perfect. You know, we machine parts to within micron. They are perfect, or they're polished, or they are, um, you know, just that level of detail all the way from the design right way to the guys fitting it on the car, you know, yeah. that level of details required, you know, cause you know, you can't make every part perfect. 
So we do rely on the eyes of the guys building the parts, and they sometimes come up and say, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't, you do, know, this do has you, got a mark on it. Do, do you sort of talk with those guys as during the design process? Is that a normal thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time, yeah. Always make sure they know what they're expecting and what they what they need. Okay. And and in terms of, because you, you, we also talked about uh, the drawing side of life. Now, is everything done on a computer? Yes. Yeah. But, but you could, well, okay, so let's flip it the other way. Um, we talked about the drawing part of life, and I was surprised to hear that you still like to print out the, uh, the, some of the drawings on a big piece of paper so you can actually have a look at them. Because that, that's where you started, isn't it? You started doing in a drawing office on a, on a drawing board. Yeah. And yeah. that level of perception and perspective is, is lost a little bit on the computer. I, th- I think so. And again, I, I'm, I'm probably a little bit old-fashioned maybe these days. You know, I have to, I have to say to myself that I am a little bit um, old-fashioned with, um, with all of that. So, but I, I think a drawing, uh, the art act of doing a drawing is that you're explaining to someone what you want to achieve. You know, so it's a set of instructions. It's, it's your portrayal of, to somebody, say, this is what I want to create. This is my work of art. And this is how I want you to produce it. And I think putting that on paper and showing a huge amount of attention to detail to all the little features that you want to portray of what's important and what they need to do, um, I think is a real important art. You know, um, there's an art to actually designing something that's very efficient and very nice and all the rest of it. Actually, getting that made is is a really complicated process. You know, CAD allows you to package things and do amazing designs. Absolutely, you know, we couldn't do what we do today without CAD. You know, um, you know that's why everything's so well packaged. You know, you look at a Formula One car now, how well it's packaged. That's all done via CAD. Another thing that we can't transfer from professional racing into amateur racing is is that level of um, you know detail. Um, but even for your, you know, but even if you're designing something for your own car, you know, you put it on a piece of paper to go and send it to the machinist or to send it to whoever you want to do because you're asking, you're asking someone, this is what I want to create. So a very, a very good, a very good buddy of mine. We used to use cardboard CAD. <laughs> it's my cardboard CAD, Samir, and and literally we would just be sitting there and uh, get some old bits of cardboard out and um, cut it out and then offer it up. And uh, oh no, that doesn't work, right? Okay, you know, and then and you know, you basically, you, particularly if it's shapes in three dimensions, that's quite that's quite difficult. Uh, sometimes it's it's actually impossible to measure unless you have a proper bit, bit of a kit. So so having something real that you can just sort of muck about with. Anyone's familiar with Alan Staniforth's uh, race and rally source book? You know, you'll know about the string computer that he used to design the suspension on all of his cars. Still absolutely relevant today. Basically, still some of those calculations are done. They're just done in in CAD. But, you know, you can do a lot of those just with a very simple string computer. You know, you don't need to be an engineer to do it. Drawings um, in particular, getting things on paper is is really, really important, I think. And it's, it's the small details. Everyone in general is very good at the big things if you want to design something let's say if you're designing a wheel everyone knows what a wheel looks like everyone can design a racing car wheel 
but it's all the little features, all the little details that make it lightweight, that make it reliable, that make it survivable, all that sort of stuff. So Make it, make it efficient for cooling the tyres. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you couldn't possibly comment. Yeah. So I nearly got you. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the kind of stuff that is quite, I, I would hope, is, is nice for people to hear that. Because I think, well, how, you know, they've got a thousand people designing two cars, well, one car, really, to drive around in a circle. And what's, how can they possibly need that many people? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, James, thank you so much for your time. I think it's been, no it's just a fascinating to hear, you know, the, the attention to detail that you, you have at work and also some of the, the thoughts of driving and, and, and particularly around, you know, how you approach your own racing as well. And the compromises, you're clearly having to make compromises compared to, you know, you've seen what you could have and now you can't, and you can't have it. So you're having yeah. to like, <laughs> you're kind of having to make a choice. Yeah. Which, uh, which is, which is in some ways a lovely position, but equally, I imagine it could be quite frustrating sometimes if you. Well, all I can say is that at the end of the day, Formula One is just still going racing. At the end of the weekend, we still have to pack everything away. We still have to put the tyres and the cars in the lorries. We still have to drain all the fuel out of the tanks. We still have to do all the things that amateur racers do. It's just done at a completely different level. Yeah. That's all. So well, it's all the same stuff. Well, that's given us some some hope, as it were. Yes. That we're, we're, <laughs> we know we're, well, we're on the right track. So, well, look, thank you very much. And um, you know, wishing, you, wishing you all the best. All right, Smith. Thank you very much. What a privilege to have James on the show and for having him to share so many insights onto how he goes racing, a little bit of background and what life is like within a Formula 1 team as well. I hope you found that fascinating and we'll go off and apply some of his good ideas to help your own racing in the future. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.